Hi everyone. So this week on Feeding Fanatics, we'll be discussing the importance of free speech. We'll be looking at three times mass violence shocked South Africa, and then check out our quote of the week by Martin Luther King Jr. So stay tuned. This is going to be a great show. So, welcome to Freedom Fanatics, a production of the Freedom Advocacy Network. This show is every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on YouTube and Facebook, and you can also find it on IGTV. Each week, we discuss the latest fan content with authors and creators right here. My name is Solon, and my guests this week are Michael Morris, who is an editor at The Daily Friend and the head of media at the South African Institute of Race Relations. And then we also have Marius, who's also an editor at The Daily Friend, and Marius is a writer at the South African Institute of Race Relations. And thank you guys for being on the show today and for making the time. Um, right now, we'll have a look at our latest Explainer video, which is released every Monday. And this week's Explainer video is titled, is titled Freedom of Speech, Use It or Lose It. Let's have a quick watch. The concept of free speech rests on the simple idea that whatever people think, they should be able to say. In a free society, differences of opinion are inevitable and tolerated, and these differences of opinion are better resolved by argument than force or violence or threat. Freedom of speech isn't always comfortable, because it often means defending the rights and freedom of people who say unpleasant things or things we don't agree with. History shows that people with the power to dominate or dictate how people think use this power to crush the freedom to believe in a different way of life. Even though freedom is uncomfortable, uncomfortable freedom is so much better than no freedom at all. Without the freedom to exchange ideas, views and beliefs, we cannot find solutions to our problems. One of the most important defenses of free speech in history was crafted in a dissenting judgment in the 1929 U.S. Supreme Court case of Hungarian pacifist Rosika Schirmer, who was denied citizenship for refusing to swear that she would take up arms to defend her adopted home country of America. In a dissenting opinion, aging Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who fought and was wounded in the American Civil War, declared that there is no principle that more imperatively calls for attachment than the principle of free thought. Not free thought for those who agree with us, but freedom for the thought we hate. The freedom of speech codified in our constitution is key to building a better South Africa based on better ideas. If you want to live in a free country where you can think, write, sing, pray and speak freely, you must stand up for freedom of speech, even when it becomes difficult or uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah so Michael, I'll come to you first. Um, you have been a writer for more than 20 years, if I'm not mistaken. And most of your career has been based on the ability for you to speak and write like your ideas, your views and your beliefs freely. 
So how important do you consider freedom of speech to be in society? And does freedom of speech have the has the, have the ability to change the lives of ordinary people? Uh, thanks, Shannon. Um, first of all, I, I'm flattered that you think I've I've been writing only for 20 years. It's, it's in fact 38 <laughs> years, or now 40, I think actually. Wow. Um, but 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 your your point remains valid. Um, I'm I'm often the fond of citing uh, the words of a, a particularly courageous uh, opponent of uh, of Indira Gandhi in, in 1970s India um, at a time when her administration was um, intent on imposing emergency regulations uh, to curb civil liberties in the name of the national interest. And this is something we, we often hear from governments and, and uh, statist uh, polities. Um, and the man, Kushrai Rani, uh, in this particular instance, warned Indira Gandhi with these words, that there are no freedoms so dangerous as those that are not exercised. And it's it's a it's a very powerful idea. And I think this applies preeminently to to free speech. And to get to your your essential point is how important is freedom of speech and does it have the ability to improve lives? It's not uh, simply an abstract idea. The it it is actually the founding. Uh, principle, the, the foundation really of any open democratic society. And it's simply this, that there is no idea under the sun that cannot be subjected to scrutiny and reason. That's the, the kind of foundational idea of free speech. And that societies that trust um, in scrutiny and reason are better off for being unafraid, open and free. So it is. It, it does really relate to everyday things. It's a society that is capable of listening to itself, of addressing real problems that are spoken about, allowing people to say what those real problems are, and leaving the field as wide as possible uh, to to actually address those 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 real issues without people being anxious about saying the wrong thing. So it, it really is a, a, a fundamental part of a reasonable, optimistic, open, and free society. Yeah. And somebody that I know who is quite opinionated and who likes to scrutinize things, as Michael said, is Marius. Um, and Marius on social media specifically, um, things appear to become, how do I say this, more polarizing. And we see things like censorship, which is essentially the regulation of speech, something Michael has warned us about. Um, and it becomes more prominent on major social media platforms. Do you consider this to be a threat to the future of free speech yeah i think um that's one of the problems the world's going to be grappling with over the next uh, few decades is the issue of free speech and speaking on uh you know big social media platforms uh platforms like facebook and twitter they're obviously private platforms so they can decide who can have a voice on their platforms and so on but they become now so big especially facebook facebook is basically the equivalent of the public square and obviously in the, you know, uh, in history, the public square, in a free society, the public square was where anybody could come and say anything. I mean, I think a good analogy is to say in the public square, somebody can come say, <clears throat> Marius is an idiot, but he can't come say that in my house because my house is not a free speech zone, but uh, the public square is a free speech zone. So, and that's the issue with things like Facebook and Twitter. Uh, they're private companies, but they're also so big. Are they? Can are they? Should we sort of uh, view them as a public good rather than private companies? And I think that's something that's going to be a big issue that uh, we're going to be grappling with going into the future. I mean, uh, we've mm -hmm. seen already Donald Trump who was banned off uh, Twitter and so on, and 
I mean, I've said this before, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, but I, I'm not sure he should be banned off Twitter. I think uh, same with Julius Malema was also banned off Twitter now. And uh, I, was Julius Malema inciting violence on Twitter? If he was, then uh, obviously uh, even uh, free speech in general in uh, normally doesn't uh, uh, go to inciting violence, inciting hatred. So these are the things that we can be grappling with going into the future, I think, and especially, I mean, but when whenever new technology comes in, it, it disrupts things. I mean, the internet is just an example. Things like the printing press, uh, you know, the, uh, whenever there's a new innovation that, that changes the world and uh, humans have to grapple with it, and I think the internet is no different. Uh, but I, as I said, it's going to be a big issue that we're uh, having to, you know, work out how to uh, work with the internet and free speech going over the next couple of decades. Yeah, and that's looking a bit to the future. And my, Michael, um, I don't want to give away your age here, but <laughs> I know that you were an anti-apartheid journalist as well, if I'm corrected. Um, and even during that period, I'm sure you had um, views that were against the things that apartheid policies were trying to implement. Did you face any um, restrictions on the things you could say during that time? Yes, um, there, there certainly were. Uh, I, I mean, I think there are two things to be said. Um, the one is there was a, a panoply of laws that was, or, or a, that, that, that's perhaps the wrong, uh, the wrong metaphor, but a, an armory of laws really that was built, uh, constructed by the National Party government to stop society uh, being free uh, in the first place, but also expressing itself and um, and conf and, de and talking about its problems. Uh, the, the most obvious one was the banning, obviously, of the ANC. And as soon as you ban and banned people who weren't even members of the ANC, and as soon as you banned somebody, you weren't you weren't able to quote them. So it was a, a real shutting down of uh, of alternative voices and the voices of majority of people. Um, on the other hand, in fact, a great deal was known, and I, I would often. Uh, think back during the 90s when the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission was on and you'd hear people saying we just didn't know and I think mostly that was a lie there was a, a great deal was in fact uh, possible to report we did report it you found ways around it um, and society was actually better informed about how bad apartheid was than those denialists might might suggest. Uh, just a very interesting instance, if I, if I could just elaborate briefly. Um, when I was based at, 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 at the old Argus Group's London office, we discovered that while in South Africa, if, if a fellow reporter had gone out to cover what would have been called an unrest event, um, the procedure at, at, in the mid 80s was that they would then have to check the details, have to actually vet the details through the, the state's media office before publishing. And obviously that was a process to slow down the, uh, the dissemination of information about what was actually happening. We discovered that from the London office, if we saw something on television, we could actually report back to South Africa and legitimately, our papers could legitimately publish a report saying, Last night, British television viewers saw, and then we could simply describe what had happened. So we could we could circumvent the law in that way. Um, so there was a great deal of um, of ingenuity and, and imagination used to try to keep society informed. Um, but having said that, you, you're quite right. There was an extensive apparatus of of uh, of, uh, of, of you know obscuring the news, obscuring what was happening. Yeah.
Thank you guys for highlighting the importance of freedom of speech. Speech not only for our past, but what is still to come and what it what what it also our future as well. And so to our viewers, don't forget to watch our expanded videos, which are released every Monday, and it can be found on all our social media platforms. You can check out our Facebook page, Freedom Advocacy Network. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Badger of Liberty. And next up, we will be looking at our article of the week which was actually written by Marius Roet. And in it, he identifies three times mass violence shocked South Africa. So Marius, the past week, we saw a violent protest and mass looting in South Africa. And this has shocked many, especially the younger generation, who has not seen this type of violence before. Is this a new thing or has this always been a feature of South Africa's history? Yeah, it's definitely been a feature of South Africa's history. I mean... Uh, going in our um, post-1910 history when South Africa became a union, there are lots of examples of uh, violence against the states and by the states. And before 1910, um, South African history is replete with examples of, uh, you know, violence. I mean, if whether it was official wars between, uh, you know, people resisting colonialism or between, uh, you know, Afrikaners and the British Empire and whatever the case was, or even between uh, amongst the black South Africans or what, would become Black South Africans later themselves. And Mfakana is a good example, I think, of where uh, Black South Africans, there was violence between them. And they obviously had the various Boer Wars. Uh, we had uh, various wars in the uh, Eastern Cape, uh, or what would become the Eastern Cape border, um, uh, you know, the Frontier Wars and so on, the War of the Axe and all that kind of thing. But uh, if we look at more uh, recent history, uh, after, uh, in the 20th century, South Africa's had a lot of examples of where there's been violence I think a big example uh, and one that I'm quite fascinated about is uh, something that was called the Rand Revolt. And there was a rebellion by white barners in what is today Gauteng. Uh, they were upset about uh, dropping uh, their wages. And um, because what, what happened was that the gold price was dropping in South Africa in the early 1920s. This led to mining companies uh, dropping wages and also trying to appoint uh, black South Africans to skilled work. Uh, there was still a color bar in South Africa, but this also meant that if you could appoint black uh, people to do certain jobs, you could pay them less than white people. But now the white workers weren't happy about this. There was a, this led to a strike and then actually a full-on uprising <clears throat> against the government, which lasted for about four months. There, there was actually two months of quite hardcore fighting between the government and uh, these workers. And um, led to the deaths of 200 people. Uh, the workers even actually took over a couple of towns in Gauteng, places like Benoni and Brackpan, Fordsburg in Johannesburg. So it was actually quite something and uh, it changed South African history. Uh, Jan Smuts was the Prime Minister of South Africa at the time. And because of his actions at the uh, Rand Revolt, he probably lost the 1924 election to a coalition of the National Party and the Labour Party. And that probably had uh, quite significant uh, implications for South African history. And that probably led to eventually to the win of the uh, National Party in 1948 and the beginning of apartheid. And then another issue that I, or another event that I raised in my uh, article was uh, 1949 Durban riots between Indian and Black South Africans, and this was when uh, Black South Africans in Durban, so it was mainly Zulus, uh, attacked Indian shopkeepers and people and Indians uh, going about their business in Durban. It's uh, still not too clear what actually sparked it. Uh, there's some rumours that there were some nefarious elements that were encouraging people to attack, encouraging Zulus to attack Indians. Uh, there are rumours that was, there were White South Africans who were also stoking the uh, the flames of this, uh, but it was. Uh, not a very good uh, situation for anybody. I think uh, about 40 people died. No, so I see about 140 people died. 1,000 people were injured and actually resulted in some 
in uh, refugees, Indians leaving Durban and then to go find safety and so on. So there was also, uh, it's, uh, that's something, I mean, I only found about that uh, fairly recently. So it's something I think we need to know uh, for our history. But also, I mean, if you look at that, it was obviously a terrible thing that happened. But Indians and Black South Africans came together off that to work together to fight against apartheid. So I think that is something that we have to look at. They came together in common cause. And in my opinion, I know there'll be some people who will disagree with me. I think generally South Africans of all races get on pretty well today. And even though we saw... Um, there was some uh, people protecting their property down in Durban during these riots. Didn't seem to me to be a race issue. People were protecting their area. They weren't saying you can't come in here because you're Indian or black or white, whatever the case is. You just had to be a resident of the area and then you could come in. Look, there might have been a racial element, but I didn't see that. And I think that's something we have to acknowledge. And then finally, there was uh, the third uh, uh, thing I uh, put in my article was the 1976 Soweto uprising. Uh, I'm sure most of our listeners will have heard about this or at least know a bit about this. This was when school children uh, marched through Soweto to uh, uh, protest against the fact that they were going to have to learn in Afrikaans. That was going to be the medium of instruction in their schools. And obviously, these were kids whose first language was in Afrikaans, or, or Afrikaans was the language they wanted to do, uh, be taught in. And on 16th of June, uh, a group of ki- uh, children, estimates put out between three and 10,000 kids, went on a march in Soweto. They were met by armed police who, st- who opened fire ga- on, on the kids. Uh, there'll be a famous photo that I'm sure most people will be uh, uh, familiar with of Hector Peterson bleeding from his mouth and being carried by Mbuyisa Makubo, uh, who now uh, who actually nobody knows what happened to him. He went into exile. And nobody knows what happened to Makubo. But there's obviously a famous photo, and it became you know the mm-hmm. symbol of uh, the terror of apartheid and you know the brutality of the apartheid state in South Africa. But that also led to uh, some. Up, I mean, that there was. Uh, lots of violence in Soweto that night. It's only lasted nights. Heavily armed police came and put it down the next day. But uh, these protests spread around the country. Uh, there are protests all over the country. Uh, there were also white people got involved. White, uh, white students from Bits marched against Af- uh, kids having to be taught in Afrikaans. And uh, this is also, uh, I think it's similar. Uh, there, there's an analogy you can draw to the Rand Revolt. Uh, lots of historians, and I think I agree, uh, say this was kind of the beginning of the end for apartheid. That's when you know the contradictions of the system really started to build up, and it became clear this wasn't a sustainable system, and that the white government was going to have to make a plan to bring black South Africans and coloured and Indian South Africans into the governing system somehow, because there was no way to carry on uh, as it was. And as you saw, I mean, uh, 14 years later, Nelson Mandela was released and the ANC was unbanned, and four years after that, we had our first uh, democratic elections. Sure, Michael, I'd also like to bring you in on this point real quick. Um, something that Arias highlights at the end of his article is that we see that in South Africa, after major episodes of violence, um, you eventually see this um, political change, like significant political change in the country. What political change do you think could be waiting for South Africa um, after these recent incidents? Um, it's it's possibly a weak spot of mine, given um, my attachment to being doubtful uh, yeah. about uh, <laughs> predicting the future. But um, but I, I you know I think it, his piece brings out a number of things, and, and his comments uh, right now. Um, uh, if, if you know if we if, if we if we look back at at how South African society has evolved over the over the eighteen hundreds, I mean virtually every year I think was a bloody year. Um, and going into the 20th century, obviously, we saw a, a much more focused uh, incidents emerging be- 
uh, as the society uh, formed in its broken sort of way. Um, but the interesting thing, and it perhaps it relates to, to your question, um, is that I, I've often felt that we're not really a revolutionary society. We are certainly capable of and willing to uh, turn to violence when something important happens and we feel strongly enough to to, to kind of exert our sentiment. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's highlighted in, 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 in Morris's piece. There are these sort of peaks that become um, unignorable because they're reflecting a kind of popular sentiment. And I think certainly um, what we've seen in, in KwaZulu-Natal Kauteng, especially over the past uh, past week, uh, is something quite distinctive. And it's a, a, an indication of where society is at. There are a lot of desperate people. Even if they were instigators at work, uh, you, you would have to, you know, they're, they're operating in an environment where instigation is 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 very likely, is very possible, precisely mm -hmm. because of the conditions people are living in. Um, so what one hopes, uh, which is slightly different from what is going to happen, but what one hopes is that, you know, attention will be paid to this, as indeed um, eventually happened after '76, uh, and, and 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 so on. And 1960, of course, was you know the the Sharpeville uh, incident, um, the Sharpeville massacre. So th th these these moments of of, of bloodshed or or eruptions um, can in fact be very uh, you know pregnant with political possibility, because they really do reflect. Uh, a very strong sentiment in a society that is, as I think, not especially revolutionary in spirit. Okay, yeah. Thank you guys for that discussion. And remember, you can find all our written content on our website, freedomadvocacy.net, where Marius and Michael are, uh, they contribute a lot to fans' content, um, especially our written content, and we're grateful for that. And finally, we'll be looking at our quote of the week, which is by Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who was a Baptist minister, and he was also a civil rights activist in the United States of America. And Dr. King states that, in spite of temporary victories, violence never brings permanent peace. It solves no social problem. It merely creates new and more complicated ones. And after the past week, we have seen the consequences of destructive protesting and looting in South Africa, where we have seen the greater loss of jobs and destruction of infrastructure, which actually sustains the economic activities of provinces such as KZN and Gauteng as well. And we know now that, we know clearly now that violence only worsens social problems that already exist in South Africa. And Marius, do you have any final thoughts for us? Yeah, I think um, sometimes violence is, I don't want to say necessary, but I think sometimes people are pushed to it. I think a good example is uh, apartheid South Africa. Uh, black South Africans were asking for, you know, a seat at the table to, you know, be part of governing the country and they refused. And at the end of the day, I mean, you know, something like Mkonto Isizwe was inevitable. But I think in a, in a country like South Africa, as it is today, where we're democratic, people can go make their voice heard it at the ballot box. There's freedom of speech. Violence is not the answer. People need to go make their voices heard, as I said, at the ballot box. Go get, go protest peacefully. And like I said, violence only exacerbates uh, social problems. And we've seen now the violence of the last week. All that's going to happen now is it's going to uh, lead to uh, loss of jobs, loss of income for thousands of South Africans, and which is not good for anybody. It's not good for the broader economy and certainly not good for the individuals who are going to lose their jobs. And yeah, it's not great. Yeah, thanks for that. And now we've reached the end of this episode. So guys, don't forget to catch us every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on YouTube and 
You can find uh, this video on IGTV as well. At the Druid Fan, you can sign up at freedomadvocacy.net. And remember, guys, your freedom is worth fighting for.